You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Ain't God good? Awesome. What a joy it is to be back with you. Uh, my name is Shane, and I was here, I believe, last November, and what an honor that was to be here, and God did amazing things, so it's good to be back tonight. Um, and Zach has invited me to be back. Don't you appreciate the ministry of Zach? And don't you appreciate him? Yeah, come on. Yeah. So, man, what a great job he's doing. What an honor it is uh, to be here. Are you glad to be here? Awesome. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you got to sit next to me. Tell him that. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, real briefly, um, Before we jump into uh, the word, I wanted to share something real briefly with you with uh, the permission of Zach, is uh, February 26th, which is a Monday night, it's the last Monday night of February, um, I oversee a conference called the uh, Empower Conference, and it's at the Urban Convention Center, and particularly on Monday night, I brought some of these cards, so if you like one of these with more information, you can see Zach, particularly on Monday night, we're going to do a night of worship where we're focusing on the next generation. Um, so we're going to have a couple of guys that share the same name, uh, leading us in worship. Shane and Shane, have you heard of them before? So that Shane and Shane will be leading us in worship. Um, and then uh, speakers that night will be uh, J.D. Greer, uh, Robbie Gowdy, and a guy named Bob Goff, who wrote the best-selling Times book, uh, Love Does, if you've heard of that. So it's going to be an awesome night of worship. And here is the great thing for college students, is the price point for this conference is on point. For college students, meaning it's free, absolutely free, all right? So, uh, yeah, be sure and come. Bring your crew with you. It's going to be an awesome night of worship. Urban Convention Center, February 26th, starts at 6.15, and uh, it'd be just a great night where we bring a couple of thousand people together just to worship Jesus and uh, to talk about reaching the next generation. Everybody cool with that? So if you like one of these, grab one for Zach from Zach afterward. All right, um, so Zach asked me um, tonight to talk about Christ-centered uh, relationships. So we got a lot to cover. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Genesis. We're just going to start at the beginning of it all. And if you have something uh, to write on, go ahead and get that out. If you have something to write with, go ahead and get that out. So if you have a pen or a pencil or highlighter, lipstick, eyeliner, whatever you got, get that out. And we're going to jot down six things tonight, six action points of what a Christ-centered relationship looks like. All right, so as you're turning to Genesis 1-1, so Genesis chapter 1, right before Genesis chapter 2. Does that help anybody? Good? All right, cool. As you're turning there, I'm going to tell you about the first time I fell in love. I was in sixth grade, and there was this girl named Jenny, and Jenny had curly blonde hair, and I was in love, like lots of O's, all right? And so I wanted Jenny to go with me. See, back in the day when we used to ride dinosaurs and we had these things called VCRs, that's how you used to ask a girl out. You'd say, will you go with me? But I was in sixth grade, and I couldn't take her anywhere unless my mommy took us, you know? So I really couldn't take her anywhere. So it's basically, will you go with me? Nowhere. (laughs) But I don't want you to go anywhere with anyone other than me, all right? So, in sixth grade, this is what you do, because you're still intimidated of the opposite sex. I decided to write her a love note. And the love note went like this. Truth story, I went, Dear Jenny, will you go with me? Circle, yes or no. Anybody ever done that? Do you do yes or no? George Strait wrote a song about it. All right. Dear Jenny, will you go with me? Circle, yes or no. True story, I put this. Love, sixth grade, Shane the Stud Muffin Pruitt. Sixth grade, wrote that. <laughs> Folded the letter up, and this is what we do in sixth grade, right? We get our friends involved. So I gave it to my best friend to give it to her best friend to give to her. She opens it up. Dear Jenny, will you go with me? Circle, yes or no? Love, Shane, stuff, my friend. She takes a pencil out. She circles an answer, folds the letter up, gives it to her best friend to give to my best friend to give back to me. I open my letter. There's an answer circled, and guess what she circled? <laughs> she circled, yes, baby. And it was on, like... Like, we were in love. Like, we were planning our wedding day. We were, like, naming our future kids. Like, the monkey bars were our special spot. All right, SP, that's me, plus JS, that was her, equals love. Number four, remember how you said that? Four ever. 
And like every breath was for her. Every heartbeat was for her. And we were together not one day, not two days, not three days, but four whole days. And when you're in sixth grade, that's a long-term relationship, right? And then at the end of four days, she decided to write me a letter. And the letter went like this. Shane, I do not want to go with you anymore. We are breaking up. Jenny, true story, she put this. P.S. You are not a stud muffin. She folds the letter up, gives it to her best friend to give to my best friend to give to me. I opened the letter and I tore it up to a thousand pieces to show what she had done to my heart. My heart was just shattered into a thousand pieces. Like every breath hurt, every heartbeat stung. Like I should never love again. I was literally saying that. There's no reason to go on. I shall never love again. I am done. My sixth grade career is over. And I felt that way for three class periods until a seventh grade girl asked me out. And I was like, boom, I'm back, baby, an older woman. You know what I mean? And then eventually I won because now I have a wife named Casey. We've been married for 13 years, and she has the spiritual gift of hotness. You know what I mean? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God's been good, and he's a gracious God. Like, we are that couple. Like, how did he get her? I married way over my head. But God's favor, baby, you know, is a good thing. But what I realized in sixth grade, watch this, is whatever I love the most dictates my life. So we are created by God, we're going to look at this in a moment, to have basically a throne on our hearts. Here's the deal, is that throne is custom made by, for Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. And if anything or anyone else sits on that throne, everything else falls apart. So how many of you, watch this, the Bible calls that an idol. How many of you know someone who like, like went all in on a boyfriend or girlfriend and then that person broke up with them, and then the person who was broken up to, like, was like, why even go on? Like, they even question why they're alive. Why? Because they began to worship that person. Ironically, Jesus said this in Matthew 6.33, what? Seek first the what? Kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. There's something amazing, like just like what Jerry prayed, like when Jesus is not the top of your priority list, but when Jesus owns the list, meaning this, he's number one in your school, number one in your relationships, number one in your job, number one in your family, number one in your life, he owns it all. Ironically, everything just falls into place, including relationships. But I promise you, if you are worshiping that guy or girl above Jesus, that's an idol in your life, and eventually that idol will let you down or the weight of your worship will crush that idol because the only one who can sustain the weight of your worship is Jesus Christ alone. So we're going to look at this tonight about Christ-centered relationships, specifically in the realm of dating and marriage. Is everybody cool with that? All right, so we got to move fast because we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short time. So, like, buckle your little pew belts there. We're going to move fast, all right? Turn your neighbor and say, are you ready? All right, here we go. Look at Genesis chapter 1, all right? And let's just jump to verse 26. Let's jump in this quiz. So, six things. Number one, Christ-centered relationships. Number one, write this down, value people. Christ-centered relationships value people, meaning this. We are relational people. God has created us to be relational why did God create us to be relational? Well, we're going to see that God created us in his image, and God is relational. Think about this. The triune God, God the Trinity, which is what? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is a perfect relationship in of itself. They love one another. They point others to each other. Like the Spirit points people to Jesus, and Jesus points people to the Spirit, and they both point people to the Father. Like you see the perfect unity in the Trinity of God. There's no jealousy there. There's no like, oh man, like the Holy Spirit, you know, likes Jesus more than me. The Father's not saying that. You know, there's a perfect relationship there, and God made us in his image. And because God is a relational God, he made us to be relational people. God values people, and he has created us to value people and a Christ-centered relationship values people. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to have a lot of fun with this tonight. So if you're there, Genesis 1, 26, say, uh-huh. All right, look at this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our what? 
after our likeness. Why does it say us in our and our? Why does it say that? Because God is a what? Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you see, even the Son of God involved in the creation of us. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So turn to your neighbor and say, you are made in the image of God. Turn to your other neighbor and say, that makes you valuable. So every single one of us have value. We are made in the image of God. And so real quickly, what does that mean to be made in the image of God? We could talk about that for the rest of the semester and not even scratch the surface. But real briefly, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. Out of all of creation, the galaxies, the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, earth, the mountains, your chihuahua, nothing resembles God more than you do. Now hear me, you are not God, you are not equal to God, but comparatively to the rest of creation, nothing resembles God more than you do. In fact, you are made in a way that when the rest of creation looks towards you, they would see the reflection of God on your life. You are made in the image of God. So I want everybody to look up at me. That makes you valuable. Why is that important? Um, every year I speak to tens of thousands of students, and every year I hear the saddest stories. So I think of last summer when I was preaching at a student camp for high school students, and a 17-year-old girl walks up, and she's crying, and she's doing the ugly cry. You know the ugly cry? Like, <laughs> like snot bubbles and stuff, and she's wanting to give my wife and I a hug, and we're like, make room for Jesus, you know? Like. And we say, what's up? And she goes, thank you for telling me I'm made in God's image, and I'm valuable. And we're like, what's up? And she goes, well, my dad tells me all the time I'm nothing more than an accident from the backseat of a car. Can you imagine that? Some of you can because you've been told the same thing. Two summers ago before that, I was preaching in a college service. This dude walks up, big dude. He's in Oklahoma. He plays for the University of Oklahoma. Big dude. He's crying. I go, what's up, man? He goes, when I was home for Christmas break, my mom came home drunk. She's an alcoholic. We got in an argument. And she points her finger in my face and says, I should have gone through with the abortion. He had never heard that before. He goes, what are you talking about? She goes, when I was 16 and pregnant with you, I wanted to abort you, but my friends taught me out of it. I wish I had gone through with it. Could you imagine that, hearing that from your mom? Some of you can because you have. How many of you, and I'll raise my hand, you've ever felt worthless or you felt like an accident or you feel like you are a mistake? Anybody? And sometimes because we see ourselves that way, we get in very unhealthy relationships. So if you hear anything tonight, hear this. I want this section to look up at me. You're here because a holy, on-purpose God said so. This section, you're breathing tonight because a holy, on-purpose God said so. This section, you're here tonight and you have breath in your lungs because a holy, on-purpose God said so. And you may have surprised your parents, but you did not surprise him. You're here because he said so, and he put extreme value on you. You are made in the image of God. And we live in Texas, so we can use double negatives, right? God don't make no junk. You are valuable. So what does that mean? Listen, you need to see yourself only in valuable, healthy relationships because you see value in yourself because ultimately God has placed value on you. But on the flip side of that, you need to be very careful how you treat someone you're in a relationship with because, listen, that person is just more than flesh and blood. And, hear me, guys, she is more than body parts. She bears the image of a holy, on-purpose God. There is value there. And then you see in verse 27, I love this. It says, then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So out of all of creation, nothing is more different than mankind. But within mankind, is there anything more different in the world 
than men and women? Can we just talk about that for a minute? Where, where's my dudes at? Where's the guys at? Come on, where's the guys at? Like, guys, like, like, guys, like, we need help. God made a certain way. Like, you're a man because God says so. We need some help, though, because, guys, we're a little bit gross, aren't we? Like, guys, can we just talk? Let's be honest in here. We're family. Let's be honest. Like, guys, we're gross. Like, we're the only species in the world that can clean out our ear with our house key, right? Like, that's gross. You do it. You're nasty. Like, you don't take a bath. Listen, Axe body spray does not count as a shower. You know what I mean? Like, like girls, and I, man, girls, I want to give you hope, but there's not a lot of hope. Like, like, girls, like, for the guy, passing gas is still funny when he's in his 50s. Like, it's messed up, I know. We're falling. We need Jesus, all right? But, hey, I want to be an equal opportunist. Where's the ladies at? Where's our sisters at? All right, make it. Like, hey, you're a little weird too, right? I mean, you're clean, praise the Lord for that, but you're a little weird. Like, you start planning your wedding day when you're seven. Like, us guys, when we're seven, we have a bucket on our head hitting ourselves with a hammer, right? And, like, and we're different. And, like, you're a little hard to explain. We need the Lord in this because, like a wise man once said, he said, men are a lot like dogs and women are a lot like cats. And he said, men are a lot like dogs because how do you make a dog happy? You feed him. And all the men said, yes. And then he said, women are a lot like cats, because how do you make a cat happy? No one knows, right? So, the Lord made us different, and that's okay. Like, girls, and all the men are going to say amen. And I love, girls, stop trying to make him like you. Value him for how God's made him. Guys, stop trying to fix her and make her like you want her to be. Value her for how God's made her. So number one, Christ-centered relationships value people. Number two, write this down. We already kind of jumped in a little bit. Christ-centered relationships see more than body parts. And everybody said, amen. Oh, really? Okay, well, let's see. All right. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, I love verse 7. There is so much meat in one verse here. So uh, we got to unpack this uh, a little bit. All right, so um, in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. Now stop right there. All right, so Lord God, don't lose that. Um, It's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh Elohim. Turn to your neighbor and say Yahweh Elohim. That's important because in Genesis 1, it's like a broad overview of creation And the name that Moses uses for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim, meaning like all-powerful God, meaning this. There is a God who literally spoke all of creation into existence that slung the stars and out of place, that holds the galaxies together by his hands. Like that is a powerful God. But right here, he adds a name to God that you can't miss. He calls him Lord God, meaning Yahweh Elohim, or Yah Elohim, meaning this. He is a covenant God. So it's, it's kind of like this. There's a sermon in these two names right here. It means this. The same God who slung the stars in outer space. The same God who spoke the galaxies with his word. That same God desires to have a relationship with his creation. Wow. So let's unpack that. Meaning God's placed value and God's made you more than body parts. Let's look at verse 7. So it says, Then God, the Lord God, formed man of the dust from the ground. So let's just unpack this. So God made mankind out of what? Dust. Dust. Don't lose this. All right, so check this out. Overflow light. In chapter one, how did God create? By his what? By his mouth, right? By his word. But right here, he creates man out of the what? Dust. Don't miss this. Check this out, overflow. You can say it like this. Out of all of creation, mankind was the only creation that God got his hands dirty for and intimately invested in. And he formed you out of the dust, meaning this, that we are made out of what? Very literal. What are we made out of? Dirt. Like, I mean, even science and biology tells us that, that primarily our body is what? Dirt and water. So we're mud at best, right? (laughs) So this one's for free tonight, but I think very relevant. That is why... Racism has no place in the kingdom of God. Because at the end of the day, apart from God's image, we're all dirt. 
just different shades of it. So think about it. Some of us are tall dirt. Some of us are short dirt. Some of us are thin dirt. Some of us are a little wider dirt. Some of us are white dirt. Some of us are brown dirt. Some of us are black dirt. But at the end of the day, we're all what? Dirt. But we bear the image of God and we're all valuable. And can I just say this one for free? It really has, no, yeah, it has everything to do with what we're talking about. If you don't like diversity, you are not going to like heaven very much. So you need to repent and get that worked out now. Like God has placed value and we're more than flesh and blood. We're made out of the dirt. Look at this. And I love this. And breathe into his nostrils the what? Breath of life. So you could also say this. God breathed life into mankind. So you could almost say like this. Out of all of creation, mankind is the only creation that shared a breath with holy God. And when he breathed life into us, here is the Hebrew word nephesh, which means soul and spirit. And the man became a living creature, meaning this, that God created mankind and he breathed a soul into them. That we are more than flesh and blood. We are more than legs and arms and hands and feet and heads and nose and ears. We have a soul and spirit. So it means this, when you are entering a relationship, like you're entering a relationship with another soul. And guys, when you see nothing but body parts, and girls, you see nothing but abs and biceps, you're missing the point. Like, how you treat that person in a relationship is soul care. Meaning this, you are either enhancing their soul or you're tearing their soul apart. This is important. And you're like, not me, bro, playing the field. No, you're destroying souls. And do you take it that serious? Like, soul care. They have a soul. They have a spirit. Like, God has set them apart, and they're valuable. Number three, write this down. So number one, Christ-centered relationships value people. Number two, they see more than body parts. Number three, write this down. Christ-centered relationships make sacrifices for one another. Christ-centered relationships make sacrifices for one another. How many of you, if I say the movie Jerry Maguire, do you know Jerry Maguire? Anybody? Is that kind of before you? All right, Jerry. So there was a whole famous line in there, like, you had me at hello, and you complete me. So if you're like, in there, like, like, I'm just a, a broken person, and I need, how many of you, look, listen, how many of you know people that always have to be dating someone? Right? Because they feel incomplete. Like, I got to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend because they will complete me. <laughs> That's very selfish. Like, you don't enter a relationship to complete you. And besides, that person can't do that. That's the job of Jesus. You enter a relationship, watch this, to make sacrifices and to love them and serve them. I want you to see that, and you see it in the creation. So if you jump down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat of it, because in the day you do, will surely die. We'll get back to that. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I would make a helper fit for him. So God looks at Adam and goes, man, this brother needs some help. Like he hadn't bathed in a while. He's leaving his dishes all over the garden. Like, it's embarrassing. So God goes to Adam one day and goes, bro, you need some help. And Adam's like, I know. And God's like, I'm going to make you a helper fit for you. I'm going to make you a companion. And Adam's like, yay, God, knuckles, God. And then I don't know, like, this is where my ADDDDD sets in and think of weird things. Because I don't know about you, like, verse 19 and 20 are really funny. Because look at it. It says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called Every living creature, that's what his name was. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we go, oh, like, is that funny to you? Because that's really funny to me. Meaning, like, put yourself in Adam's, you can't say shoes because he didn't have that yet. Put yourself in Adam's naked feet, all right? And imagine you're Adam. And God comes to you and goes, bro, you need some help. And Adam's like, I know. And he goes, I'm going to make you a helper fit for you. I'm going to make you a companion. It's going to be awesome. And I was like, yay, God. And then God brings him all these animals. Like, think of how confusing that was for Adam. Like, here comes the elephant. 
And he's like, God, is that her? You know what I mean? Like, and God's like, no, name it. And he's like, woo, because I mean, I could probably got over the ears, but I don't know about the trunk, you know, like. And then here comes the platypus. Adam's like, is that her? You know, like, I mean, like how joyous it was for Adam to see Eve for the first time because all he saw were these animals, right? And so look at verse 21. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Basically, God knocks Adam out. And while he slept, look, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Relationships require sacrifice. So think about it. For Eve to be a helper to Adam means that she was making a sacrifice to help and serve and love this man. For Eve to even be created, God had to take a bone from Adam. You see sacrifice there. And here's what I believe about God. I believe that God is sovereign. Do you believe that? Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like God is in control of everything, meaning I believe everything God does is very intentional. I think God took a rib from Adam's side very intentionally to make Eve. Because think about it. God could have taken a bone from Adam's head to make Eve, but that would have given a picture as though Eve was above Adam. God could have taken a bone from Adam's foot to make Eve, but that would have given a picture as though Eve was beneath Adam. God takes a rib because where's the rib? To show they are equal partners. They are equal like differing roles, right? God's called the man to love his wife as Christ loved the church and be a spiritual leader, but she is no less important. Like, guys, if you have the idea that you're going to be a husband and you're going to start throwing around Ephesians all the time and tell her, well, you know, you're to serve me because I'm the Lord of this relationship, so give me a, go get me a big red. You have totally missed it. Like, Husbands are not dictators. There's a vast difference between a dictator and a leader. In fact, I think it says, love her as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died. So there's sacrifice here. And it says, in the, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called a woman because she was taken out of the man. You see the sacrifice of both here. Listen, you don't enter a relationship to complete you. Only God can do that. You enter a relationship to serve and love and cherish the person that God's given you as a gift. Meaning this, you know how um, several years ago there was this popular uh, ministry and popular outreach and a popular focus called I Am Second. Do you remember that? I Am Second. When you're entering a relationship, it's I Am Third. Christ first. And this other person who I'm serving and loving above me. And I'm third. But what's beautiful about it is if both of you enter the relationship, then you don't have to fight for your own rights. Right? You don't have to fight for your own rights. Like in, in ministry, I do counseling all the time, especially for married couples. And I've always noticed the same thing. They'll come in with this attitude of conditional love. And they'll say things like this. The guy come in and goes, well, if she'll do what she's supposed to do, then I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And she's like, oh, if he'll do what he's supposed to do, then I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And then I give the Dr. Phil response, like, how's that working for you? Because obviously it's not. But what's great, watch this. If both enter with the mindset of I am third, Christ number one, I'm going to place this person above me. And the other person is saying, Christ number one, I'm going to place this person above me. Then you don't have to fight for your rights because the other person is doing that for you. What a beautiful picture. Like there's sacrifice there. Number four. Can I just say before we go on? No, 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 let's move forward. All right. <laughs> Usually, like, when I go off cuff from my notes is when I get in trouble, so we'll stay on the notes. All right, go. Number four, have a healthy view of marriage. Like, have a healthy view of marriage. Even if you're going into a dating relationship, you say, is this a person I can see myself married to? Like, have a healthy view of even what the end goal of. Have a healthy view of marriage. Jump down to verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. So you could almost say it like this, that God created Eve and gave her to Adam, meaning this, God was the first father to walk his daughter down an aisle and give her away to a man. You could say it like this, guys, that God was the first pastor to perform a wedding ceremony, 
right here in the garden, and he has a one-sentence sermon. How many of you wish sometimes preachers have one-sentence sermons, right? My, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Meaning this, have a healthy view of marriage. A healthy view of marriage is this. You see marriage the way God does. And I want to say this very lovingly, very humble, very gentle, especially in the culture in which we all live. This is not a political statement. It's a biblical statement, meaning this. God created marriage. God invented marriage. Therefore, God gets to say what marriage is. And it's very arrogant for us as a culture to think we can redefine what God already has defined. Does that make sense? And he said, one man, one woman for a lifetime to come together. Watch this. And the two become one. The two become one. A wise man once said this. He said, in marriage, there's three rings. There's the engagement ring. There's the wedding ring. And then there's suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning this. Marriage is not like an episode of The Bachelor. All right? It's not all helicopter rides and rose ceremonies, all right? You know the part where the girls are, like, fighting and want to knock each other out? Marriage is more like that, all right? No, I'm just kidding, all right? It's not. But here's the beautiful thing is that sometimes marriage is grimy and raw and gross and hard and a lot of suffering. But here's the beautiful thing. This is a beautiful picture of marriage that sometimes a man and a woman, they come together and they become one. And sometimes they're going to laugh together. Sometimes they're going to cry together. Sometimes they're going to rejoice together. Sometimes they're going to suffer together. Sometimes they're going to get along together. Sometimes they're going to not like each other together. Sometimes they're going to win together. Sometimes they're going to fall on their face together. But the most beautiful word in it all is what? They are what? together. And you know, that's a beautiful picture is to where I can look at my bride, Casey, and say, you know what? We may go through hell on earth, but we're going through it together. And it's a healthy view of marriage to where now marriage is defined of when it gets hard, then you can hit the road. And we make vows, it's for better or for worse until I decide otherwise. And some of us, we have an unhealthy view of marriage to where you see marriage in a way that culture is defined, to where you look at marriage in a way that God is defined. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Christ-centered relationships have a healthy view of marriage. Number five, for time's sake, let's move on real quick because this will be a fun one. Number five, Christ-centered relationships have a healthy view of, let's see it here. What does it say? Can we talk about that in the church? Is that okay? Are you going to tell me if we talk about sex in the church? Because can we be honest? Most of the time, this is how church approaches sex. It's like we're either silent about it or we demonize it, don't we? And we'll say this. Sex is gross, vile, and disgusting. So save it for the one you love. Right? Like, (laughs) how confusing is that? How confusing is that? Like, can I let you in on a little secret that God is not against sex, that God is for sex, that God even created sex? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, don't get all awkward on me now. you got to stay with me, all right? A healthy view of sex. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 again. We're going to look at this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created what? Them. And God, look at verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and what? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. Okay, you're old enough to know how that happens, right? Like, have you ever heard somebody say this? It's biblical. The first, think about it. The first command that God gave mankind was to have sex. What? And you're like, dang, Christianity just got real interesting, right? Like some of you might be on the bubble of this faith. Like you're like, I'm in. All right? You know, like think about it. Think about it. Like, like what I mean by that is like Adam and Eve did not catch God off guard. It's not like God created. He's like, all right, 
the galaxies, the sun, the moon, the stars, Adam and Eve. And he's like, gosh, I'm tired. And he turns around and gets a drink of water. And he turns back around and sees Adam and Eve and go, what are y'all doing? Get, dude, off. Like, like they didn't shock God. You know what I mean? Like he invented it. Like God is for it. But watch this once again. Just like marriage. God created it. God invented it. And God gets to define how it's done. And God created sex to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. And God is not a killjoy. God loves you and wants to protect you. It's kind of like this. I want to show you this car. Um, So as hungry college students, can we show this car up here on the screen? Yay, no? Yeah? No? All right, let's pretend there's a car on the screen, all right? And it's a Lamborghini, and it's worth $4.7 million. Did you know there's a Lamborghini that has $4.7 million? And how many of you, if I said, hey, I'm going to give you this car, you would accept that car? Now, I don't know about you. I'm a truck guy, so I would sell it, all right? But, all right, so, but here's the deal. If I said, hey, here's a Lamborghini that's worth $4.7 million, it's priceless, this Lamborghini is made for what? What are Lamborghinis made for? The racetrack, right? They're made for the roadway. And you're like, cool, I think I'm going to take this thing mudding, right? And everybody would go like, bro, you are not smart. Like, because that thing is not made for off-road, it's made for the racetrack, right? There it is, yeah. That's not even the one. You found one real fast. That was awesome. Dude, you're on the spot. All right. It's not even the one I said. What is it? It works. All right. So you got this Lamborghini and you're like, man, I'm taking this thing off-road and I'm going to like go through mud pits. And you're like, that's not smart. Why? Because a Lamborghini is created for the racetrack. Watch this. Sex is created for the roadway of marriage. And you say, nah, man, I think I'm going to take that off-road. You know what happens when you take $4.7 million cars off-road? Yeah. Why? Because it's not created for that. And things fall apart. And things break. And things get destroyed. When you take sex off the roadway of marriage, things break, primarily our heart. Things start falling apart, our soul. And things get hurt, us. Created and beautiful for the roadway of marriage. And let's go to this last part real quick. So this is where we get to our hope. Number six, Christ-centered relationships have Jesus at the center. So tonight you say, you know what, I've already made some mistakes, so what's the point now? There's no hope. Um, Our story, my wife and I, my wife, walked with the Lord intimately from junior high through high school, even to college, and uh, she saved herself from marriage. I didn't become a Christian until I was 21, so I always say in junior high and high school, I was building my testimony, you know what I mean? All right, so, <laughs> like, I could not say that. And very, when I became a Christian at 21, I was like, man, I'm damaged goods, like, nobody's going to want me. And what's beautiful is that the gospel restores all things. And he makes all things new. Meaning this, even the mistakes you've made in the past. I want you to see this in Genesis 3. Like You say, okay, here's God's intentional design, but how did we fall apart? How did things get the way they are? Well, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Very quickly, we'll be done. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Talking about Satan. How many of you agree, like, it's smart for God to compare Satan to a snake? I don't know about you. I'm terrified of them all. If it's bigger than a worm, it's a cobra, bro. You know what I mean? (laughs) All right. And he said to the woman, and I want you to see what the enemy does in relationships. Isn't it interesting that the way that Satan goes after mankind is he goes after their relationship, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another. So he goes to the woman, and he says, did God actually say, don't miss this overflow. What is Satan doing here to the woman when he says, did God actually say, what is he doing? 
He's challenging the word of what? God. He's challenging the word of God. And he does the same thing to us today. Satan is a punk, and he does the same thing to you. Like, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Forget what God said. Forget that Christ in a relationship. He doesn't know. He said, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither should you touch it lest you die real quick. Why did God do that? If we say, okay, God knew that they were going to rebel, why would God put that tree there? You know what that tree was? That tree was an opportunity for them to trust the word of God. It was an opportunity for them to obey God and to worship God, saying, God, you will tell us what is good and evil. We'll trust you. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Satan does this again. What is Satan doing here? By him telling the woman, you will not surely die, what is Satan telling her? What is he saying? What is he communicating there? What is he saying? That God is a liar. Satan, the enemy, does the same thing to you. God doesn't know how to make you happy. God doesn't know how to bring a right person in your life. God doesn't know. Like, you don't need to be patient. God doesn't know. God's a liar. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like what? Don't miss that. Let's read it again. For your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That was the temptation. I want everybody to look at me. That was the temptation. Not eating an apple. First of all, we don't even know if it was an apple. It says fruit. It wasn't about an apple. The temptation was this. You don't need to listen to God. Eat that fruit. Be your own God. It's exactly what culture values today. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that culture values is the very thing that Satan tempts Eve with? Hey, be your own God. Like you could even fill in these blanks. To each their own. It's your life. Do with it what you want. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. So Eve, make your own decisions. Do what you want. You can be your own God. You don't need God. You know how to make yourself happier. And that's what the enemy would tell you. Listen, God doesn't know how to bring the right guy in your life. You know. So don't be patient. Do your own thing, girl. And then, guys, hey, guys God doesn't know. You, you do your own thing. Make your own life. Make your own decisions. God doesn't know. That's the great temptation. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she goes, mm, you're right. I think I can make my own decisions. Let's do this. And as a light to the eyes... That the tree desires make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And guys, we always blame the women, don't we? It's Eve's fault. Have you ever even seen that shirt that's got a bite out of the apple and it says, my bad Eve? Have you ever seen that? Once again, we don't know it's an apple. Secondly, stop blaming Eve. Because if you read Genesis for what it is, God gave that command to who? Adam. And when Eve ate, what happened? Nothing. Nothing. So it says, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And we don't know this. This is me just making up my own story. But I can imagine Eve looking at Adam and like, Adam, you need to eat this because I did. And it worked good. All right? And he's like, no, God said. And she's like, do it. And Adam's like, uh uh-uh, you're on your own, girl. I ain't doing that. She's like, if you love me, you'll do it. And he's like, give it to me. Right? <laughs> and then when Adam ate, what happened? So dudes, quit blaming the women. When Adam ate, look, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. They tried to cover their own shame. So it means this. If you have messed up and you have made mistakes, stop trying to cover your own shame and run to the Lord and let him do it. Like, here's the deal is we're all jacked up. There's no holier than thou's in here. Like, Adam and Eve rebelled, and the moment they did, that soul, that spirit that God placed in there died. They became spiritually dead. They became sinners. It was natural for them to sin. And what do sinners do? What are sinners good at? We're almost done. What are sinners good at? Sinning. We hide sin. We justify sin. We compare sin. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We're sinners. We're good sinners. We're good at it. Turn to your neighbor and go, you're good at sinning. Tell them that. They need to know that. <laughs> We're jacked up. There's sin. You're like, so what? That's a long time ago. Here's the so what. Every person who was ever born after Adam and Eve are born sinners. We make mistakes. We mess up relationships. We have jaded views of relationships. We hurt other people. We're sinners. There's something wrong with us. How many of you say, Shane, there's something wrong with me? It's sin. How many of you are sitting next to someone and there's something wrong with that person? What is it? Sin. But here's the good news. 
is that religion, watch this, we're almost done. Religion says you need to do a bunch of rules. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to pray prayers, you need to light candles, you need to rub beads, you need to help little old ladies across the street. If you do enough good things, you can reach up to your God and your God will accept you. You'll reach a place of enlightenment. But the gospel is not another religion. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. Instead of us reaching up to God, we can't do that because we're spiritually dead and dead people are good at being what? Dead. So watch this, here's the gospel. Instead of us reaching up to our God, our great God loved us so much he came down to us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God who was involved in creation, took a mission trip from heaven to planet Earth and became a man to die as a man for mankind, but he never stopped being God. Everything he did was good and awesome. Lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. The sin-free life. Think about it. Caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the handicapped to get up and walk. That one's very personal to us. Our five-year-old son's in a wheelchair. Walked on water. Fed over 5,000 people with two fish sandwiches. Subway has nothing on that brother. And then at 33 years old, he did the greatest act of love ever. He took our place on the cross. Turn your neighbor and say, your place. Don't ever get over that. Listen, no matter how many times you've heard this, you don't mature past the gospel. You mature in the gospel. That should have been us. When they shoved the crown of thorns on his head, that should have been me. When they spit in his face, that should have been you. When they nailed him to the cross, that should have been us. We are sinners. He is sinless. We are broken. He is perfect. We are jacked up. He is holy, and yet he took our place out of love. As the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect substitute, he died. They took his lifeless body off the cross and put it in a borrowed grave. You know why they put the body of Jesus in a borrowed grave? Because he wasn't going to stay there long, baby. Because three days later, he busted out of the grave, showing that God the Father had accepted God the Son's sacrifice on our behalf. And he showed himself for 40 days, and he climbed on top of a mountain called Olive, and right before his disciples, he ascended into heaven. He went through the gates of pearl, down the streets of gold, through the singing angels and the bowing elders, and Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did Jesus sit down? Not because he was tired, not because he needed a Starbucks break. He sat down because three very important words he said on the cross. What is it? It is finished. But that's not the end of the story. Because one day, the trumpet's going to blast, and the angels are going to shout, and Jesus is coming back for his church. Do you believe that? People ask all the time, when is he coming back? I don't know. Well, one thing I do know is today is a heck of a lot closer than yesterday was. I love what one God says. He says the angel Gabriel is going to toot and we're going to scoot. That's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> but who's the church? Is it this building? It's a cool building, but it's sitting inside of here make you a Christian. Just like sitting inside of Taco Bell is not going to make you a burrito. We understand that, right? <laughs> Buildings don't make Christians. Jesus, who is God, does. And listen, you don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to depend on someone else to complete you. Turn to Jesus. No, he loves you. So a Christ-centered relationship requires Jesus. Watch this. From both people. Don't get into missionary dating. You know what I mean by that? That boy looks good. I bet he'll look better with Jesus. <laughs> so I'm going to date him so I can share the gospel with him. I'm going to fix him. It is not your job. That's a savior complex. It's Jesus' job. Now, if you say, hey, I want to be friends so that he can come to know Jesus, and then we'll see what happens after that. <laughs> a Christ-centered relationship means this. Watch this. It means having Jesus at the middle. So you love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other person loves Jesus with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Watch this. And if Jesus is at the center and you're passionately pursuing Jesus and they're passionately pursuing Jesus and he's at the center, then both of you are coming together and truly becoming one. And Christ does that. So you say, how do I prepare myself to be in a Christ-centered relationship? Love Jesus and be content in Jesus. What's interesting in my story, uh, man, I was a wreck with relationships. And so when I got saved, there came a point in my life where I said, God, like, I need to just focus on Jesus. And so there became a point at like four years later where I was content. I'm like, Jesus, I don't want to be single. Like, like, I want to be a husband. And I want to be a father. But if that's your will for my life, I am content in that. And what's amazing is not long after that, that's when I met Casey. 
the best way to be prepared for a Christ-centered relationship is for you to be content and complete in Christ yourself and trust God to be sovereign. Man. So a Christ-centered relationship, as the guys come back up to lead us in worship, value people, see people more than body parts, make sacrifices for one another, have a healthy view of marriage, have a healthy view of sex, and most important of all, have Jesus at the center of your life. And if Jesus is at the center of your life, he'll be at the center of your relationship. Why does that matter? Because we are disciples of Jesus. And when we became disciples of Jesus, he now gets to say, not only did Jesus buy your soul and spirit, but he bought your body. Your body belongs to Jesus. It is no longer your right to give it away to others. Everything matters now. Why? Because we are disciples of Jesus. And when we become followers of Jesus, everything changes, including our relationships. Listen to this. Because Jesus bought me, I am a disciple of Jesus. And because I'm a disciple of Jesus, even in my relationships, I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. Because I am a follower of Jesus, my past is redeemed, my present has purpose, my future is secure. Because I am a follower of Jesus, my face is set, my feet move fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide named Jesus is reliable and my mission is very clear. Because I am a follower of Jesus, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, hired away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. And because we are followers of Jesus and we are the church, it's time for us to stand in our faith and be bold in our faith and be complete in our faith. So as the church, let's stand up. And because we are followers of Jesus, everything changes. And because we are followers of Jesus, we got to stand up, we got to wake up, pray up, sing up, preach up, pay up, and never give up, let up, back up, or shut up until our Jesus Christ calls us up and let our relationships reflect the glory of God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.